Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode continues our series that takes a look at the people behind the plans, showcasing the work, life, and stories of planners from all across the profession. I'm your host, Courtney Kashima, founder and principal at Muse Community Design, a planning and public engagement studio in Chicago, Illinois. I'm also a longtime member of the American Planning Association. Our guest today is Greg Lindsay. Greg Lindsay is a senior fellow of the New Cities Foundation, where he leads the Connected Mobility Initiative, a non-resident senior fellow of the Atlantic Council's Foresight, Strategy, and Risks Initiative, a visiting scholar at New York University's Rudin Center for Transportation Policy and Management, a contributing writer for Fast Company, and co-author of the book Aerotropolis, The Way We'll Live Next. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Greg, you're an urbanist and a futurist, but you are not a planner. How did you get on this podcast? <laughs> I was hoping you would tell me that. Um, how am I here? I'm in town here in Chicago attending the Shared Use Mobility Summit. Uh, so I've spent the last few years writing about really sort of the future of cities and mobility and work. And, um, you know, my background is as a journalist. Uh, I think of the world in terms of narratives and stories and characters and understanding uh, yeah, how we basically tell stories about the world in which we live and the way we want it to be. And so I guess, you know, planners, of course, are thinking about schematically. I'm always thinking about desires and marketing and trying to figure out, you know, how do we create a vision of what we want to make uh, as a way of sort of understanding the world. In all seriousness, planners are responsible for creating plans and policies for many of the big ideas that we debate in society. But we don't always have the time and space to think big. So I know that smart cities is something you have written and spoken publicly about. And many cities are adopting smart cities plans, even creating new positions or departments to tackle these issues. I'm wondering what your take is on the issue as it relates to planning. Yeah, that's a great, interesting discourse. I mean, smart cities as we know it, we have to go back 10 years now to think about it because the, that phrase was actually coined in a speech uh, by the then CEO of IBM at the Council on Foreign Relations just a few days after the election of President Obama during the financial crisis. And this was, of course, IBM's grand vision of how they were going to tie together all their software. And then Cisco and all these others followed suit. And so the point of this is to think about it as a day. Smart Cities was always a marketing vision. These companies never intended to actually holistically address the problems of cities. The more you delved into what they were offering, it was, hey, we have this collection of stuff. What can we sell you? And what can we can we close this deal this quarter? Because that's all we really care about. Uh, and, you know, we've seen 10 years on that, like, the smart cities movement has really come to naught. Um, we all know that technology is being embedded into the urban fabric, uh, and we all know that this technology can help our citizens. Um, but, you know, it's the role of the planners to really understand, okay, how is a technology a solution to the problems that we actually have in cities to building the kind of cities we want versus, you know, here's what we've got lying around. Let's sort of, sort of slap it together. Uh, and so, you know, I always waited. You know, one of the people I like to work with is uh, Cityfy's John Tolva, uh, who's, you know, partner with Gabe Klein, who's here at the, at the summit and others. I mean, John was the only real urbanist that I IBM had at the time in 2009, 2010, uh, and they weren't really investing in it. And so I think, you know, those tech companies made a huge mistake when they did not actually acquire, you know, urban anthropology arms, planning arms, people who would really speak the language and really understand what problems cities were in fact trying to solve. Uh, it's really interesting. They, that came through when they worked with cities that came through procurement. They were used to dealing with government as a buyer of software and they did all that. 
Um, so 10 years on, you know, we're finally trying to fix these problems. You know, uh, my CityFi colleagues, you know, they're working with West Hollywood and a number of places to really create roadmaps of, okay, here are our policy goals. You know, how can we actually plan out how technology fits into it? Um, and, you know, I mean, I'm still waiting for like the first truly huge success story of that. I think one of the big problems is it even still is that, you know, the cycles of urban planning and urban construction, let's say, and the technology life cycle are so wildly out of whack that it's really hard to reconcile the two. I mean, the smart city happened. It's just the smart city happened in the form of Uber and Airbnb and these other, you know, and WeWork and these other multi-billion dollar startups uh, that use technology to weld together existing assets versus, you know, sticking sensors in the pavement everywhere. So, um, so that raises the question, yeah, what, what should planners do about Uber? What should planners do about Airbnb? I think we all know that they have proven to be very difficult beasts to wrangle. Um, and, you know, I think that's the challenge for the next few years, at least. Well, and the one cycle you didn't mention, but is very front of mind for many planners, is the political cycles. As a resident of Chicago and a planner here, it felt like a completely new day with John Tolva coming onto the city and Gabe Klein heading up the Department of Transportation. And now they've both moved on and are doing great things. But I think many observers would say, don't underestimate political cycles as well. Oh, certainly not. I mean, you know, this is something that's a challenge everywhere. And I, that's why I think, you know, someone asked me just the other day about, you know, what cities are the most progressive uh, in terms of, uh, you know, mobility planning. Um, and I, I spun that purely as advanced, not progressive politically, because the first two uh, names off the tongue were Singapore and Dubai, uh, totalitarian nanny state, you know, uh, and then, of course, a, you know, Gulf monarchy. Um, so it's very easy to fall in the trap of like, you know, if we just have visionary, enlightened despots running it, it'll be great. Um, yeah, that's a huge challenge. Like, how do you fix it in the political cycle? Because that to me, that's one of the problems why the technology companies, which have all the agency right in making these plans. We've made jokes today about Elon Musk and the boring company and about the fact that he's rediscovered PRT 40 years after it was debunked. Well, you know. Posing for a photo with Elon Musk is the new ribbon cutting of a new line on the metro in Washington or, you know, or the, or the you know, the Second Avenue subway in New York where I live. Um, you know, you want to be seen as progressive and you want to be seen as with it. And so you partner with these tech companies. And I think many, you know, mayors and other political leaders don't really understand what they're signing up for, don't really understand the motivations of these companies, which is to not play with government whenever possible. So I don't mind admitting that I'm here today a little bit uh, as the straight man in that I am not a futurist. In fact, as a study abroad student in England in 1999, I predicted that text messaging would never catch on in the U.S. So um, let's have a conversation about that. I mentioned you think about cities a lot. You think about the future. I'm wondering what are some of the most exciting and terrifying things you see happening in cities? Oh, where to start? Um, so two years ago, I wrote a report for the New Cities Foundation uh, called Now Arriving, a Connected Mobility Roadmap for Public Transport. And I took the then somewhat controversial stance that uh, that left unchecked Uber and Lyft and any competitor that rose up after them or in their mold uh, would effectively destroy public transit. That it was their agenda from the beginning to colonize it, to basically siphon off you know, the most educated and, and most lucrative ridership um, onto their service. And when they did that, based on what we know about public policy research by you know, Benjamin Page and uh, Northwestern and others, you know, that, uh, that you know, if you capture that elite, their preferences drive public policy. So I was, af- I was afraid it would lead to a disinvestment in public transport once they all got into the back of you know, Uber pools and, and, uh, and shared lifts and things. And, um, and yeah, I, was, I guess I was sort of half right because we've seen declining bus and train ridership across many major American U.S. cities in New York and Los Angeles, and I believe here in Chicago. I haven't seen the numbers off the top of my head. 
Um, but you know, that's that in some ways precedes some of the problems with Uber and Lyft. That's just you know mismanagement and disinvestment in the case of New York. Um, so that's what I see. I, you know, I worry that we, again we left we leave these companies unchecked, and of course they've also spun out you know huge public policy and uh, lobbying arms to deal with this as well. So you know, so Airbnb, of course, you know uh, there was just a report that came out uh, that you know as many as two thirds of its profits in New York come from illegal listings. Um, you know, the city and the attorney general have tried to fight back on this, but it's still really difficult to wrangle that much money. So, so that's uh, I think that's one big problem we see. Um, uh, I mean, where to start from there? I mean, I, I worry a lot about, of course, the Trump administration, again, being a New Yorker, uh, where, you know, the White House at the personal directive of the president helped kill the new tunnels under the Hudson uh, that we need to replace the tunnels into Penn Station. So having a, a somewhat vengeful government that is actively anti planning anti sort of urban agenda and, and transit um, that's pledged it will kill uh, rail funding as we can as we know it um, and also you know a big a big chunk that ties into that is is you know the, the president's also advanced this sort of public private infrastructure initiative um, well you know and Chicago knows well based on you know some of the various interests or the lack thereof in the Chicago infrastructure bank um, you know the various efforts to sell off midway and other private you know the, of course Don't the parking meters, parking meters the parking meters well the joke about the parking meters is that when parking goes away due to autonomous vehicles that may have been a, actually a, a very far-sighted move to actually sell off the parking meters at that price um, but you know this notion of you know I worry about a privatization of the city I worry about the internet of things. Uh, becoming a way to basically toll every part of your life where every interaction you have with the city becomes one that's charging you micropayments and that formerly free public things are now very private ones. Um, I don't know. I can go there. That's a good start, I think, of, of some of the things that I worry about particularly. Well, that leads me to a question. Um, personally, I think one of the biggest issues facing society is a lack of awareness of the collective impact of individual action. And as an urban planner, I think we have a special responsibility in this regard, basically to protect us from ourselves. We typically see this done through regulation, design, and other mechanisms. But I also think planners are frequently hampered through the politicization of planning. Do you share this view? And if so, do you have ideas to improve it? I mean, absolutely. Agenda 21 immediately springs to mind, right? Planners are at the heart of the great UN global conspiracy to destroy the American way of life. That is a joke for those of you listening. Um, yeah, how to, how to reform it? I don't know. That's a particularly hard moment in time right now, right? I mean, America is at the sort of, again, the sort of ascendant uh, polarization about, you know, live free or die versus those of us trying to, yeah, trying to regulate, you know, the externalities of our lifestyle. Um, I don't know. I mean, I do think there's a, you know, a heroic role to be played by planners in this. And that's obviously, you know, I mean, it's it's hard to say in the U.S. context. I, I, I you know, you label me as a futurist. But even I have a hard time creating that narrative about, you know, how we get to the, you know, the denser, greener, better connected cities that we all know are implicitly good ones. And by we all know, I mean, all of us who are listening to this podcast, I guess. Um, but, you know, as someone who again, admires all the European examples and seeing what smart regulation can do, um, we know how to, we know how to get there. Um, it's just it's and this is where I guess I'm the, the journalism comes into play. It's a question of we have to concoct a better story. Um, and few of us have. And. I don't know, it's difficult in many ways, particularly when technology is the sort of reigning narrative of this. And now I'm starting to sound like Jared Walker, who was just giving the keynote over there and railing against technology PR firms. Um, but, you know, they've, they've succeeded in creating this master narrative about the benefits of it. I mean, Uber trained people in less than a decade that not only if you push a button on your, on your phone, a car will come, but that it's the coolest thing you can do. I've literally gotten into fights with people where I say that I'm not going to take an Uber, I'm going to take a taxi instead. And they ask me what's wrong with me. They confront me because they understand implicitly I'm challenging them on this, which I think is really interesting. 
Um, and as planners, I don't know, we need to do the same. I mean, we need to actually create, I guess, better visions of how this can be and, and try to fight back against the fog that is the sort of marketing reality of it. And I don't know, it's, it's difficult. I, and we can think of all sorts of perverse consequences. I'm, I'm thinking right now I'm going to, the, to Venice this summer to go to the Architecture Biennale. And I'm always reminded of the American tourists who go there to Venice and they wander through this, this magical wonderland. And then they go back to the most sprawling excerpts they can possibly imagine. And I always wonder about the sort of cognitive dissonance that allows that to happen. And yet there it is. And of course, there are many advantages to suburbia. I grew up in suburbia and I will never go back. But, you know, it makes me um, it makes me wonder, you know, how do you how do you deconstruct that narrative and, and reconstruct one? And, and to some extent, that's been happening. That is the return to the city's movement of the last two decades. That narrative is somewhat formed. Uh, arguably the biggest problem that's been done, and this gets to the heart of the issues for planners, is that we chose to make the dense urban core a luxury good. We've made them luxury goods, and we've made them tournament luxury goods, where the only way to buy in the heart of Chicago or New York or San Francisco is to have multi-generational wealth transfers so you can buy apartments or homes there. And that may be one of the fatal mistakes we've made. Even when, when even a Richard Florida has recanted his vision of the creative class, which was a very successful story and narrative, um, you know, is, is doing mea culpas that he was wrong to some extent. Um, I think that shows the limitation of that model. So, I mean, this gets into a good transition about, you know, where to build and why and things that we need planners for. And, and this gets to like what California is doing with SB 827 uh, or 827. I don't know how they name their Senate bills. Um, but, you know, their, their vision of like, re-transforming San Francisco and fighting the NIMBYs, and they seem to have the momentum on their side. Of course, that could just be me and my planning bubble. <laughs> no, the cognitive dissonance is definitely on my mind. I think I mentioned in a previous episode uh, my hometown, which is a small Midwestern city with a liberal arts college. So a very nice, a very nice place to grow up and has the potential... Um, to be urban at its appropriate scale, once had a Sears in the downtown. Um, they were struggling as recently as a year or two ago over sidewalk cafes, and I had the same reaction. People pay a lot of money to go to Paris to experience cafe life, but can't imagine the possibilities in their own downtown. So it is a struggle, and if we think about the many aspects of our life that have been um, impacted by a great marketing campaign. I'm looking at milk, I'm looking at pork, I'm looking at whoever else has had the money. Um, It'd be wonderful if somehow planning had that kind of budget and firepower, but I don't see it happening soon. Well, you know, I worked on a project here in Chicago a couple of years ago, or at least it was it was set here. It was with Jeannie Gang and uh, and Theaster Gates and Roberta Feldman at UIUC. Uh, it was for a MoMA exhibition called Foreclose, Rehousing the American Dream. And we were challenged to think of new visions for suburbia, new forms of planning of it. And uh, our site was Cicero, uh, which was chosen for various GIS reasons. Um, but it was fascinating. It was my, really my introduction to sort of the new inner ring suburb, which is a rival city for, in this case, Mexican immigrants. Um, Cicero today, for those of you who are still thinking of Al Capone or, you know, Jesse Jackson and race riots in the 60s, today it's, I believe, 88% Mexican or Mexican-American, 48% foreign-born. And, uh, and there it's, you know, it's multifamilies squeezing into brick homes designed for Polish immigrants a century ago. And so we were trying to rethink how do you, if since they're already you know, multiple families using homes in different ways. How could we, uh, you know, scrap the zoning code, basically rewrite the zoning code to conform to how residents live today and, and design, you know, new forms of institutions that would actually allow them to live their lives better. So we also created, you know, the center of it, a community land trust um, that would allow you to basically buy rooms to it. It was sort of a co-living space before the co-living became there. But it was aimed at, you know, the real residents of Cicero. And it was interesting because, you know, 
we discovered the zoning code of Cicero in particular was filled with all sorts of covenants designed to discriminate against its residents. And we tore it to shreds. And I'll never forget when we actually presented our results to the local government in Cicero. You just sort of see the thousand-yard stairs on both sides of the table here because neither of us supported what the other stood for. But but part of the problem, I come back to this, is, is that, you know, even talking to the families there, I mean, we interviewed a lot of the, of the residents. Um, and, you know, one of the things, you know, uh, I think statistically, you know, uh, Hispanic households in the United States lost more of their wealth in the financial crisis than other demographic groups because they invest more in housing. They believe in it as a safeguard of value. And so going to them and saying that, like, the way we're going to try to protect you or the way we think we can protect you from another financial calamity, which is relevant given what the Senate just passed to repeal parts of of Dodd-Frank, is to basically definancialize housing. We know we'll put you in a community land trust. They hated this idea. They hated it. Homeownership meant everything to them. And it was Good reminder of that for me, sitting here, uh, you know, a white resident, a white, white former resident of Illinois who grew up in Bourbon, Illinois, in a white suburb, about these master narratives and how that ties into race and history and culture and all of these things. So did any of the ideas from the exhibit catch on? No, part of it was it was sort of unworkable in the time because we partly imagined this building would be under constant construction, which, you know, you could imagine would be unfeasible. But uh, but I think, you know, part of it, we, you know, 2012 or so, 2011, 2012, when we worked on it, was sort of, you know, WeWork was deep in stealth then at the time and co-working was still considered this alternative moment. I think a lot of people today would look at shared living spaces, shared workspaces and recognize it as a norm. I and mean, we were proposing commercial kitchens. We were proposing, um, you know, all sorts of, you know, shared communal resources at the time that would you know, reduce the overall financial footprint and, you know, enhance the quality of it in our, at least in our renderings. Um, so, you know, I like to think that we were, we at least, a, you know, we were a harbinger of it, of where it was going and sort of laid out some of the possibilities. Um, and, you know, it, it's interesting. I mean, uh, facilities here in Chicago, like the plant, they were up at the time, they sort of pointed to what this could be, thinking about urban agriculture and other things. And so um, I'm still waiting for, you know, I think some of the really interesting hyper mixed use projects to come along, which is partly my interest in sort of um, a planning right now is to think about, you know, if you think about it, even manufacturing to some extent has become cleaner and less noisier over time. If you think about 3D fabrication, the maker movement, things like that. So there's real opportunities if you reform zoning or get rid of it to create really new weird programs of things. Um, and so I think it'll be interesting. Some will develop projects of thinking about education, married to manufacturing, married to shared workspaces or living spaces, uh, and figure out something that really adds value to that. Just as an aside there, um, one of the projects that I'm tangentially connected to is Mini Living. So the automaker Mini, which is owned by BMW, they have started a co-living, co-working, mobility-as-a-service startup in China called Mini Living, where they are offering a monthly fee. gets you all in. So no lease, no, uh, yeah, no car. You can basically just sign up as a member. And then once they build a whole network of it, you can live in any of them around the world. So I think it's really interesting, this notion of like housing or work as a membership model. And these are the kinds of things we need to think about because we exist in this universe where there is, you know, housing and work and shopping. And, you know, of course, over time they've merged, but now they're like adding strange new business models to it as well. And what does that mean for cities? Are you talking about bringing back the company town? Well, others have. I, you know, now we're getting into like Sidewalk Toronto or we're getting into what Facebook and Google have proposed in Silicon Valley. Um, you know, as a big fan of Pullman's architecture here on the South Side. It is amazing. Uh, it's truly incredible. Um, but, you know, and, and Pullman was a success in the beginning because it was amazing and because it was better than the local tenements. And then, of course, it decayed over time when Pullman realized it wasn't actually in the business of providing worker housing. And also company script was not a particularly great idea either. 
Um, so it'll be interesting to see. I, I, I think you know, modern company, modern company towns uh, are springing up in the valley because those communities have refused to allow more housing. They refuse to uh, change the zoning for that, and so you're seeing employers turn to it uh, almost out of desperation. I don't think Google or Facebook really want to be in the in the in the practice of providing housing, but you know, if that's what it takes to lure their engineers there, they'll do that. Um, I think you know, I think WeWork, We Live, which is a very complex company. Um, points to like the new notion of like you know living above the store. Now it's you work below your co-working space on the top floor, um, and they insist that you know they're seeing people who are uh, you know couples, parents with young children, and even elderly you know uh, empty nesters are moving in there for companionship as well. So you know I'd like to think it's not going to be all tech bros inside these new you know uh, uh, residential buildings, but hopefully it'll be some interesting mix. Those dreaded millennials, perhaps. Um, so. To bring this part of the conversation to a close, the bulk of our listeners are urban planners. Um, not all of them are urbanists, and probably far fewer are futurists. What kind of impact do you think that has on cities in the U.S., uh, particularly when we think about ideas like projection bias and planners' charge and responsibility? Well, I think the I think the if there's one problem that planners have, and I don't want to tell you all your problems, um, but I think one problem that people have in general is that we're not weird enough. And like, and I say this as you know, you can call me a futurist. I have some futurist credentials. I'm not as well versed as others in this about you know the finer arts of scenario construction and things. Um, but I do say like you know people tend to and they want to think long term. They just fall into the trap of projecting forward, uh, which is one scenario. You know, but there's other weirder ones. I mean, thinking about how current trends collapse. Uh, or are constrained in some way by major changes, or some other whole other new thing comes along and they change that. We have a really hard time of trying to like keep what futurists call the the cone of possible futures open. So you're trying to project, you know, a wide range of possible experiences versus one narrow path. Uh, and I think that's a part of discipline that needs to get factored in into the planning in the planning profession uh, more generally. And like how you do that is tough. I mean, I know Arup, for example, you know, the infrastructure firm, they have a whole foresight arm that, that's looking into this and constantly trying to think about alternate futures or alternate ways of deploying the technologies that currently exist. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's something that would be a fruitful combination is to, you know, uh, do some sort of like light touch training in that or bring in some of that expertise to think about, you know, how do you force yourself to get out of your comfort zone in that and, and just as a way of reconnoitering the landscape. Because, you know, it's, it's, you know, one thing to talk about how an Uber or an Airbnb changes the landscape in a decade. But, I mean, that existed. I can tell you, if you want to, if you want to see the whole future of, or, or really the present, the present was predicted 20 years ago in a project by Hitoshi Abe, who's, who was the former dean of architecture at UCLA, called Mega House. And he imagined that you would give up your house for a membership in Mega House, and there would be rooms and skyscrapers around any given city that you would have access to, hidden rooms inside of them that could be reconfigured for what you needed. It was a brilliant idea. It's exactly what we built. It's the combination of all these trends. You could have seen it. You could have thought about it. Obviously, can you build a business out of it? That's tougher. Um, but for planners, I mean, thinking about that, thinking about, you know, would people be willing to give up their home for an asset light existence kind of thing? I think that was a, a question worth pondering 20 years ago. And, and thinking about those questions today is something worth thinking about as well. I guess I feel like before we even get there, we have to allow planners to do that. So yay for big firms with big budgets. Um, as a society, you just said it's difficult to push ourselves to think big and far. 
but we get really skittish when uh, we allow our governments to do that, our government arm. So there may be, you know, a sexy mayor initiative here or there, changing the department title or hiring some what I call whiz kids. But for example, in Illinois, in the state legislature right now, there's a bill to remove government funding for any continuing ed. They want to, to not allow public dollars to be spent on continuing ed. And to me, it's outrageous. You wouldn't want an accountant, a doctor, a lawyer, any other sort of professional to never learn anything again. And But that's that's the thing. People see it as against efficiency. So I think I said this before, we're not even allowing uh, planners to have the time and space to deal with these issues. They don't have the agency to tackle them, even though they're sort of responsible for it. Well, yes, eating, eating our own seed corn is a state problem and an American problem, arguably, at this point in time. Um, yeah, where do we even start there? Um, it's true, although the counter to that is, is you know, is, I would argue that, the, that where we start that is not, you know, yeah, bringing whiz kids to change at the government level. It's really the, the larger problem we need to do is, is identify the allies and start changing the larger narrative about it. Like, you know, I mean, if Uber had showed up in 2010, they weren't going to get... Uh, any contracts from city government, or for a real example, I mean, Via, which is you know specializes in, sh- in ride sharing from the ground up, they just got a contract to take over the entire public transit of Arlington, Texas. Arlington, Texas is going to phase out its admittedly weak and newish bus system uh, and hand it all over to Via. That wouldn't have happened ten years ago. That wouldn't have happened, you know, when Via started. They're not that old, but Uber or anything else. But you know, that whole st- story got constructed around it, and so you know, I think. Identifying earlier who potential partners are, figuring out how they can actually work with you, uh, and trying to bring them into that narrative and then have it all change is an important thing. I mean, we're seeing now, so for example, over at the summit is Joshua Shank, who's at LA Metro, you know, who runs their Office of Extraordinary Innovation, which is one of my favorite department titles That's of the all name. time. That is the real name of it. Uh, and they've created an inbound RFP process, trying to like rather than say, you know, send out the RFP, like having identified out of their own you know, all expertise is ultimately narrow. Uh, having more ideas come into that. I think we need to we need to think about some institutions that can bring these ideas in, and also, you know, spending some more time thinking about the landscape. I mean, I had this I had a similar conversation about this with Transport for London about you know how do you how do you broaden your landscape on this? And you know, in the end, they settled down to like monthly meetings on it where they would sit around and talk about transport <laughs> trends. I, I felt that was not enough, and they realized it wasn't enough. They at least brought in one person, probably a whiz kid, to work on these kinds of challenges, but. I don't know. It's it's going to be something where you know it's you can't change the entire profession overnight. You can't change entire departments overnight. But like, I guess we do need to like boil the culture a little bit on this and promote the kind of vision we do want. Because otherwise, you have Travis Kalanick showing up at TED and talking about this and exciting people into it, and then it becomes inevitable. Inevitable. I'm making air quotes right now as I say that. Um, you know, and then people get locked into this. We ha- we have to change the trajectories of technologies of these trends before they become air quote inevitable. So I want to talk about your book, Aerotropolis, came out in 2011. For those who may not be familiar, tell us a little bit about it in particular, and in particular what you've noticed since it came out. Well, Aerotropolis, as a word, it's a counterfeit Greek word coined by the Chinese in the early 1990s when they were the first to hit upon the idea, really, of building cities from scratch around airports, which is a very mainland contemporary Chinese idea. Um, 
so the book came out in 2011 and you know it was a way half of the book was a way of looking at how you know we built these gigantic global infrastructures to build what we think of as globalization in modern life so there were chapters devoted to for example you know the huge sorts that fedex and and ups maintained in memphis and louisville the the giant sea of distribution centers that made overnight shipping possible in the first wave of e-commerce arguably that chapter has aged the most poorly because now we have the whole trend of warehouses on the edge of the urban periphery with same day or even same hour delivery. Um, but those infrastructures persist. And the second half was looking at, yeah, like mega planning. Lake Corbusier meets globalization on airports at, you know, entire cities built from scratch in China and the Gulf and elsewhere uh, around airports because of their economies of speed and scale. Um, and, you know, seven years on, um, a lot of, I got a lot of it right in that. You know, uh, the co-author of the book was John Casardo, who was the academic who popularized this idea. And he's still he's still somewhere in the middle of China, probably, as you listen to this, uh, you know, working with Zhengzhou, which is a city where most of our iPhones are made now after Foxconn moved its plants there to take advantage of cheaper wages. And, yeah, it's, it's only with global air infrastructure that you can ship an iPhone from the middle of China, formerly remote by any standard globally, uh, to us practically overnight. Um, and then, of course, you know, I see almost announcements weekly of, of you know, major initiatives, some good, some utterly terrible. Uh, Denver is going to try to develop new plans for its massive footprint around its airport to accommodate the urban expansion of the Front Range, which I think is going to add a million people over the next 20 years. They're going to need something and not all of them can be packed into downtown Denver. Um, Sydney is going to build a massive new city on its west side to replace its airport, which I don't know enough about to know if that's a good idea. Uh, and then others were seeing, you know, planning on massive scales where there's huge land grabs in Indonesia, in Cambodia, in Taiwan, um, where governments see it as a way to expropriate land and, and build entire cities from scratch to probably for the gains of a handful of individuals. Um, so in a modest sense, to come back to this is, you know, I think we need better planning around airports is the short answer of this. I look at O'Hare, which is the subject of a partial chapter. And my reading of the history of O'Hare, for example, is, of course, of politics and arguably graft. And, you know, when I wrote the chapter in that 10 years ago, I hung out with Jesse Jackson Jr.'s uh, spokesman and speechwriter, and we toured the proposed Will County Airport, which has been coming my entire life to the south side of Chicago, uh, where they had, you know, retained private firms. And I listened to Jesse Jackson Jr.'s spokesman go on and on about the graft that was involved with O'Hare and, and the tight control of politics. And and yeah, I mean, O'Hare spending $20 billion to turn it into a world-class airport because of the way it has to absorb pieces of neighborhoods, the reconfiguration of the runways, this you know, incredibly important asset the, that arguably makes Chicago a global city. It has to be done, and it's insane what they're doing at the same time, you know, in terms of the amount of, uh, you know, man hours and money spent to do that. So I find airports fascinating in that regard. Like, they are these infrastructures. You know, Rem Koolhaas, the architect, likes to say that airports come in two sizes, too big and too small. Um, and that's that trend still plays out. And I think there needs to be a lot more planning done about figuring out how do we manage the growth of airports? How do we get them to coexist with their neighborhoods? Can you build neighborhoods around airports at a humanish scale? Um, that's a really interesting challenge, and no one's ever really grappled with it because we hate airports. They are noisy and polluting, and because of the politics. Like, cities don't want to deal with airports, and airports don't want to look beyond the fence. They have all sorts of interesting government issues. So, so I don't know. That'd be, that'd be my call to arms there. Can you plan a good airport? No one, no one succeeded. Many have tried. So the idea would be to make it a real place. You think that's possible and or, air quote, inevitable? 
Well, I guess it can be done to some extent. I mean, you know, the example that people come back to are the Dutch, you know, talk about consummate planners in, in every way. I mean, you know, Schiphol is a world-class example where it's excellently tied to transit. And I've actually seen families go there for lunch on weekends, partly because there's a great train station with great shopping around it. So it is a sort of functioning urban node to it in the same way Grand Central would be or, you know, uh, other examples of that. So you can do it if you build other programs around it and you connect them well. Um, and they also have good real estate arms to handle all the businesses that locate there. And it's, you know, some of the highest highest rents and most valuable property in the Netherlands, commercially speaking. Um, so you can do it. Um, yeah, I think the real challenge is, can you, know, can you do it humanely? Can you create? I mean, I, I like to say that the best places, the best cities are ones that are locally close and globally connected. You know, you want human scale at the, at, at the day-to-day, but then you need great global connections there as well. And, and can you do that without sticking a big airport on the edge of your urban periphery? Because as we've seen time and time again, the urban periphery will grow towards it. There's simply too much money to be made by developers, and they will, they will seep out in that direction. So better to plan it and better to figure out what uses you do want around your airport than to what, see what happened back in the day where they dropped auto plants and cement factories around it, or today it's houses. In the case of Denver, they built that airport so far out they were convinced no one would ever move out there. And seas of McMansions started moving out there the day it opened. And then they complain about the noise. And that completes the cycle of life. So are airports the new malls? Am I being, I'm probably late to this uh, analogy. Well, malls are dying at a pretty fast clip, and airports are actually doing better than ever, at least the handfuls that are hubs. I mean, the real problem there for cities of that perspective is is that, you know, if you have a hub airport, it's the, it's the best asset you could have. I mean, people were reminded of that with the Amazon HQ2, which I will just take a note to say is a reprehensible spectacle, and I think it's disgusting at every level what Amazon's doing. Um, but reminding people that having great national, regional, and global air connections is an important civic asset, I think, was was a good thing. And the fact that they're only going to pick a city that has greater connections is a reminder about that importance, because I think we we take it for granted and we disqualify it. Well, since you're from the area, I have to ask you about Migsfield. Oh, Migsfield's a tough one because, you know, I'm I, I'm glad to count Jeannie Gang as a friend of mine. And I think what she's done with Norley Island is amazing. But um, yeah, I do think what Daily did was illegal, bulldozing in the middle of night without actually having any real public process on it. Um, yeah, brazen. And, you know, I, yeah, I would hate to see another leader do that today. I'm glad that in New York we didn't see Michael Bloomberg try something of that kind. I don't know what he would have done, blown up a pier or something like that to create the park he wanted. Um, yeah. I mean, the results are great, but I don't believe, I'm, in general, I don't believe the ends justify the means. This did feel like a very Chicago moment, I have to say. Something I like to ask all of my guests, and especially you as a bit of an outsider, um, in which arenas has planning noticeably moved the needle? Where do you, what are you inspired by in planning? What do you look forward to? Well, it's interesting. I think, I don't know, I'm, I guess I'm inspired by it. I don't know if we consider it planning, because I don't know the internal infighting about this, but I've been paying attention to, you know, the rise in the last few years of the so-called tactical urbanism movement, um, you know, by Mike Leiden and others, you know, the notion that we can not only involve citizens in prototyping the kind of improvements we want, but, you know, you can also, yeah, I mean, you can, you can do it illegally and sort of, you know, ask permission later, or you can, cities can use it as a prototyping kit for bike lane networks or whatever else improvements they want to see. Um, the problem with it is, which has been, I think, rightfully criticized by many, is like no one's been able to connect it to strategic urbanism um, in many ways. And like, and we haven't seen tactical urbanism for uh, evictions, for housing, for like a lot of the core issues. It's great for bike lanes and bike lanes have many good benefits. But um, seeing tactical urbanism 
applied and validated for marginalized communities of color and seeing it in these sort of core areas would be very, very useful. Because I do believe in the idea of fast cycle iteration and prototyping for it and involving the community process and seeing what we learn from tactical apply to those areas and then have it really migrate into the strategic would be a really important thing. I mean, you know, in New York, we point to Broadway with the bike lanes. We point to the re-envisioning of Times Square and all those things are great. But like, I live in Queens now and like, I really want to see, yeah, I want to see green space created in Jackson Heights, which is arguably the most diverse neighborhood in Queens, if not America. Um, and you know, th- that public attention resources have been, have been far, uh, few and far between. Um, so I'd be curious to see like what tactical can do in that regard and, and how it can be sort of migrated into mainstream planning and given real resources and apply for real problems. Are there other areas where you think there's still work to do? I mean, lots. I mean, you know, I mean, we're at a mobility conference here. So, you know, what's the role of planning uh, when it comes to, for example, what Waze is doing to our streets? You know, there's a lot of publicity around the fact that like Waze diverts things down, you know, small town streets. And there's a a town in New Jersey near the George Washington Bridge, which is trying to close them to that. Uh, That's relatively opaque data. What can planners do to get that data? What can cities do to pry it out of these companies and get it in the hands of planners? I mean, I still think the you know, I'm sure there's many good people in it, and I just don't know them all. But I, there's still a lot of work to be done in sort of yeah, digitally planning and understanding the intersection of of you know these new technologies and their applications in the landscape. I mean, I come back to this. I mean, you know, one example I use of this is Pokemon Go. Remember two years ago, Pokemon Go briefly conquered the world. I thought it was a really cute anecdote about. Yeah, literally overnight, someone could drop an entire new overlay onto all of your work, change all the dimensions and value about what you do, um, you know, and yeah, and it was fun. There was examples of, you know, stores banning Pokemon Go players. Well, there was a paper that came out looking at distracted driving in certain communities. I think it was in several counties in Indiana, and they extrapolated those numbers nationwide, back of the envelope figures, and they found that, you know, maybe 250 people died in, in driving accidents and driving collisions because people were distracted by Pokemon Go and, you know, billions of dollars in damages. So there needs to be some sort of understanding or some way of, of more rapid response about understanding what these technologies will do. And when augmented reality comes down the pike, which I am a believer in, where we're going to have spatial overlays and wayfinding will change and things like that, um, you know, there needs to be an intersection of planning with wayfinding and digital UX design um, that we create best practices for that and regulation for that so that there is a way for, for governments to basically dictate this is how a street will look and feel at every level of whatever digital strat- strata you want to put on top of it. Um, I think those things are going to be important, plus the equity issues of making sure that people who do not have that technology can access it. Um, just as one minor note there, there was I want to take a, a point of issue with Jay Walder, who was speaking at the summit, who Jay, of course, ran transit agencies in Hong Kong and New York and London. He was complaining that there's no reason today with the technology we have that you should have double painted lines on the streets in London to show no parking. To which I'm like, of course you should, because we should not assume that everyone has a smartphone or an augmented eyepiece in the future. And I really worry when I hear talk like that bleed into it, that this notion of like, well, of course, everyone will have this tech. Um, We need to figure out ways in which we can plan for it and then also preserve it for those who don't, because that's ultimately a planner's responsibility. So I really appreciate the conversation we had today and your willingness to join us on the podcast. I'm wondering if there's any recommended reading or resources for our listeners in particular. Where can they learn more about your work? All right. Well, two things I recommend. Number one, in addition to my many titles, I am also director of strategy for LA Commotion, which is it's now in its second year in Los Angeles. 
as a prototyping festival and conference looking at the future of urban mobility. Um, so we take over a street in the Arts District, uh, in Carlton Street, near the A Plus D Museum, uh, and, and the Los Angeles Clean Tech Incubator, and we basically sort of prototype what the street of the future might look like and what urban mobility will be. Uh, we have test rides of electric scooters and all these things. So I would encourage everyone listening to this to check it out and, and come and visit us. And then the second thing I'm doing is uh, I'm guest curating the Recite Conference in Prague, um, which is an urban conference, and our focus this year is on housing. So I'm delving deeply into looking at you know, looking at new forms of collectives, looking at new forms of how do we create, uh, you know, non-financialized housing, looking at new forms of fabrication, um, and and so forth. And so I would check you, I would encourage you to check out uh, both lacommotion.com uh, and recite.org to see what I'm up to. Greg, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For more information and to hear past episodes, visit planning.org slash podcasts. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Have an idea for a podcast? Send them to podcast at planning.org. 